All right, so show of hands this morning um, and keep them up, okay? How many of you enjoy barbecuing? Now, I asked this question last night, and some people said, well, eating barbecue or actually doing the work? And I mean actually doing the work, which, at which point half the room's hands went down. <laughs> so how many of you enjoy actually doing the work of barbecue? Okay, now keep your hands up. That's a lot of you. All right, how many of you enjoy, uh, and, and this is kind of a generational thing, how many of you enjoy video gaming? Video gaming. Okay, barbecue handing, stay up. And then anybody enjoy video gaming? Okay, no hands went up. Oh, okay, double hands right there. Okay, then you're cool. Keep your hands up. People are like, oh, it's hurting. Pastor John. How many of you enjoy gardening? My wife has a green thumb. Maybe you have a green thumb. More hands went down, you people. All right, a lot of hands. Look around. Okay, put your hands down. I'll give you a break. Now, I have a warning for all of you who raised your hands. Um, did you know that in America today, the police can be called on you for doing these things? It's true. The police can be called on you for doing everyday things like barbecuing, swimming, sitting at Starbucks, golfing, uh, eating at Subway, gardening, playing video games inside your own home, or cashing a paycheck. Or maybe not. It depends on your race. Today, I continue our nine-week sermon series, Hearts and Minds, which is focused on the first 17 verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Last weekend, we looked at Paul's words concerning the old self and the new self, taking off the old self and putting on the new self. This weekend, we're looking at Paul's continuing thoughts on that, in which he further defines what it entails to put on the new self. So today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 10b and verse 11. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And here, that is here in this new self, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all. Christ is in all. That's God's word to us this morning. Can you see how Paul continues his thoughts in which he further defines what it entails to put on the new self? Paul is direct and Paul is clear in his, in his instructions regarding the new self. The new self, that self that God is working on within each and every one of us to become our best selves. The new self does not allow any room for bigotry, racism, or xenophobia. Well, Pastor Jonathan, other than revelation from God, did Paul have any other foundations on which to come to this conclusion? And the answer is a resounding yes. Paul, who belonged to the top 5% of the educated class of his time, was trained as a Jewish Pharisee of the Jewish law. This means Paul was better schooled in what we call today the Old Testament than any of us are. What follows are four essential biblical principles that Paul could have drawn from to build his conclusion regarding that new self, the, the new self that does not allow any room for bigotry, racism, or xenophobia. So, number one in our outline today, 
all humans are an interwoven part of God's good creation. All humans are an interwoven part of God's good creation. In both Genesis chapter 1 and in Psalm 104, now we're not going to read all of that, uh, it would take too much time, but in both Genesis chapter 1 and in Psalm 104, we learn that humanity, in all of its diversity, is part of God's intricate and amazing creation. We did not bring ourselves into being, rather our existence is a gift from God. Our lives are interwoven with all threads of creation. The stars, the planets, the oceans, our lives are interwoven with all threads of creation. The animals, the trees, the plants, we are part of God's creation that God declared good. Six days of creation, and after every day, God concludes by looking at all that he created on that day, he concludes and declares it good. And on the sixth day, he declares it good. God's creation that God declared good. All of God's creation is an intricate, in, <laughs> I'm going to cross this word out of my outline. I said it last night and I killed it too. God's creation is an interwoven system <laughs> of life. When humanity elevates one group over another, when humanity falsely declares a particular people group lesser than another people group, we are, in essence, usurping God's place as creator who declared all of creation good. We deny God's intention that all human beings are created for interrelationship, and we proclaim our judgment over creation as more authoritative than God's own judgment over his own creation. Have you ever had a, like a loose thread in a sweater or a shirt or a dress, and, and it's just driving you crazy? It drives me crazy, right? So you reach down and you start pulling on it to fix the problem, and and you try to snap it, but by fixing the problem, it actually starts to unravel. It reminds me of a song. You may be familiar, some of you. It's a generational thing. There was a band in the mid-1990s that came out. The, the name of the band is Weezer. And uh, one of their, their breakout songs was called Undone. I'm going to try to sing a little bit of it for you. Get ready. If you want to destroy my sweater... Hold this thread as I walk away. Watch it unravel and I'll soon be naked. Lying on the floor, lying on the floor. I've come undone. Okay, so the song is called Undone, right? And the whole idea, right? We, we know this. Like, we do it. Some of you are clapping. Thank you so much. Right? You, you think you're fixing the problem when actually you're, you're making, you're being more destructive. We are an interwoven fabric of humanity. So when we take a thread and think, oh, this thread is no good, and we start pulling on it thinking we're fixing the problem, we are, in fact, actually destroying the fabric of humanity. All humanity is an interwoven part of God's good creation. Number two, all humans are made in God's image. All humans are made in God's image. Last weekend's message was titled, Image is Everything. And I, and I want to build on that idea this morning. Again, we're going to draw from Genesis chapter 1, but specifically we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it reads, Then God said, this is at the conclusion of creation, 
Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let us make humankind in our image in our likeness, God said. All of humanity in all of its diversity. Now let me define human diversity. Human diversity is, the identifi is identifiable by characteristics such as culture, place of origin, and skin color. All of humanity in all of its diversity is made in the image of God. Now, fully understanding this phrase, made in the image of God, requires an appreciation for every person's worth, every person's value, every person's dignity and sanctity. So let's talk about sanctity for a moment. It belongs in the word group that includes sacred, that includes holy. In God's creation, part of God's holiness is imprinted on each and every one of us. Let me say that again. In God's creation, part of God's holiness is imprinted as sacred and is imprinted on each and every one of us. So, um, time for an object lesson. Is this a piece of metal or is this a coin? The answer is both. Now, what distinguishes this piece of metal as a coin? Well, this piece of metal has been minted. It's been coined. And on this coin, this is a, a quarter. You know whose image is on the quarter? Washington, right. This is the image of Washington on this piece of metal, and it distinguishes it from random pieces of metal. It is minted as a coin. And as a minted coin, this random piece of metal is actually given value. Make sense? And <laughs> let me ask you a question. The image is Washington. Does that make this coin Washington? Is this coin actually George Washington? No. It's just a piece of metal. It's been minted as a coin with the image of George Washington on it. And it, because of that, it gives it value. Now, in the same way, being created in the image of God, <laughs> does, does that make us God? The answer is no. Some of you are thinking, well, maybe. No. That does not make us God. But uh, I, I say this uh, in our liturgy for communion. We, humanity, were created as part of creation, but set apart from creation to be uniquely in relationship with God. And created in the image of God, we're imprinted with God's holiness. That gives us our soul. And it gives us our value. In God's creation, part of God's holiness is imprinted on each of us. Therefore, the image of God within all human persons is fundamental to our rejection of racism. Now, while focusing on the image of God emphasizes human similarity, differences between people are also valuable. Which leads me to my third point. All humans are diverse, and human diversity delights God. All humans are diverse, and human diversity delights God. In the Old Testament, that Old Testament that Paul would have been so familiar with, uh, specifically in Job chapters 38 through 41, again, I'm not going to read them, that would take a long time. Um, in Job 38 through 41, God is portrayed as delighting in all of the variety and diversity of creation. In the New Testament, God's delight with the breadth, 
God's delight with the variety and diversity of humanity is revealed most specifically in the book of Acts, chapter 10. Now, as many of you know, uh, as members uh, and regular uh, attenders of our church, I was gifted a sabbatical over this past summer. And a lot of you have been coming up to me and say, asking me, how was your sabbatical? Um, so I get a chance to share a little of my sabbatical with all of you today. Um, one of the highlights of my sabbatical was I had the opportunity to travel to Israel, and, and I did this intentionally. There was many, uh, many pastors have said to me, uh, and others have said, when you go to the Holy Land, you have a whole new appreciation for Scripture. It comes alive in ways that uh, you wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, normally come alive if you hadn't been there. And, um, and ultimately, it influences uh, your teaching and your preaching. So here I am. So Acts chapter 10. I want to tell you about two places because these two places take part in, cha cha in uh, Acts chapter 10. Uh, one is Caesarea, and I'm going to talk about Tel Aviv, which isn't part of it, and I'm going to talk about Joppa. Now, Tel Aviv is, imagine uh, downtown Los Angeles, but take downtown Los Angeles and put it in Santa Monica. So you have a very modern city that's right up against the west coast of Israel. Um, and on the south end of Tel Aviv is Joppa. Joppa is the oldest, uh, one of the oldest harbors and cities in civilization. It's amazing. And, uh, and I had an opportunity to go to there. I'll tell you that in a second. And, then, and, and on my second to last day, I had the opportunity to go to Caesarea. Uh, and Caesarea, imagine, so imagine Santa Monica with tall buildings. And imagine Joppa being like Hermosa Beach. And Caesarea is like where maybe perhaps like Malibu Point is. That's the distances we're talking about. And so I had an opportunity on my last day, the second to last day I, I visited Caesarea, and on my last day I, I uh, went into Joppa with absolutely no expectations. I was just, it was my last day of the trip, I was exhausted. I thought, I'll just go down there and walk around. Now Joppa is, uh, it, it's called the Old City of Joppa, and it's on, uh, it's a harbor, and it's on a hill, and it's something, I mean, I hate to compare it to this, it's like Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like this, this fortress city that's on a hill, and the streets are more like alleys, and I, I, they're no wider, they're just a little wider than this, uh, the church aisle here. And so you're walking cobblestone streets, and, and all of these walls, there's houses behind them, but it's just, you're walking through narrow alleys. So I'm walking around just exploring, there's little art, things and, you know, shops and stuff and homes. Some doors are just closed and somebody lives in there. And I came around a corner and I'm looking at a door which was a nondescript door, but above it, it said Simon the Tanner. And it was as if someone had taken a, 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 a brush and a, a can of paint and just painted it above the door. And then it said, uh, like, scribble. And then next to it in, in Hebrew and Arabic, uh, I'm assuming it said the same things. Now, all of this feeds into... Acts chapter 10, which I'm going to tell you about. It's a four-day story. I am not going to take four days to tell the story. Day one, um, Cornelius, who is a captain of a legion of Roman soldiers in Caesarea, uh, who's, a, who's described as a godly man, is given, a, a, well, actually not given, an, an angel visits him, and an angel s speaks to him and says, go to Joppa and find Peter um, and invite him to your house. A Roman Gentile soldier is an angel visits and says, go to Joppa. So uh, he orders two of his servants and one of his soldiers to go to Joppa to find Peter. So off they go. Now, 
whatever, 2,000 years ago, that's a one day's journey because they're walking or riding donkeys or, and so forth. So they, they're on their way. Day two of the story, Peter's already in Joppa. Um, it's beautiful. It's, it's like a vacation city. So I don't know, maybe Peter was just chilling with his friends. But he's at Simon, Simon the Tanner's house. And he wakes up that morning and he goes up to the roof to pray. Now, I always, well, anyways, the way I imagined it and what I saw was basically you're on a coastal city. He's basically on the roof to pray because it's a beautiful, like, you're on a hill, you're looking over the ocean, it's, it's beautiful. So he's up there praying, and he's given a vision. And this vision is, um, it's like a sheet that's unraveling from heaven, and all of the, what the Old Testament would describe as unclean animals are kind of pouring out of this sheet. And he he, Peter, an observant Jew, is invited to eat or partake of them. And Peter says, absolutely not. I can't do that. And God declares to him, what God, in this vision, what God has made clean, you must not profane. What God has made clean, you must not profane. So, so Peter's now, obviously, he's, he's always thick-skulled. I love Peter. He just never gets it the first time. He's given this vision three times, and every time he's like, what is going on? Um, so at that time, just as he's spending this time in prayer and coming to a conclusion, guess who comes knocking at the door? The two servants and the, and the soldiers sent by Cornelius from Caesarea. And they invite them, you've been invited to come and, and to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea. And, he, and it's described, Paul, Peter in his heart feels God's spirit leading him to, to do this. And so, um, so Peter goes with them. Day three is a travel day. They're going from Joppa back up to Caesarea. And on day four, Peter arrives with, with, with this uh, crew of guys. And, and it's, it's actually kind of cute. Cornelius, I mean, this is amazing. Because of this visitation from the angel, he is prepared to receive Peter into his presence. Gentile, Jew, um, this isn't... This isn't, this isn't kosher. <laughs> uh, this isn't a kosher meeting, truly. And, and Cornelius has invited his family and his extended family. Like, I've invited a guest, and, and this is a vision from or an angel who's visited me. Come and be here prepared to welcome. So they welcome the stranger in. That's Peter. And Peter begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And they receive the good news, and it says that the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And Peter says at that time, he goes, you know, seeing the Holy Spirit poured out on them, who am I to prevent them from being baptized into the kingdom? The book of Acts recounts what, what was the momentous decision to proclaim the good news of the Messiah to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were included in today's primary scripture, the uncircumcised, the barbarian, the Scythian, the slave. The Gentiles were at the time considered unclean by the Jewish followers of Jesus, which included Peter. But as you heard, Peter's initial hesitation to have anything to do with the Gentiles is overcome by those visions and when God tells them what God has made clean, you must not profane. And once convinced at the end of this story, Peter concludes, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. And so the arc of Scripture teaches that God's grace doesn't 
erase human differences, but in fact embraces all of human diversity. Therefore, racism falsely proclaims that differences with, within humanity are negative. Instead, we must understand that human differences are evidence of God's abundant creativity. All humans are an interwoven part of God's good creation. All humans are made in God's image. All humans are diverse, and human diversity delights God. And lastly, number four, all humans deserve justice. Now, I learned some things in preparing for today's message. Um, and one thing I learned was this equation that I'm going to share with you, and that is racial prejudice plus power equals racism. Prejudice, racial prejudice plus power equals racism. And I learned this from one of our, docu uh, one of our denominations' uh, formal documents called Facing Racism, a vision of the beloved community, which was approved in 1999 by our denomination. And I'm going to just read a portion of it to you. It reads, a starting point for understanding racism is clarifying the distinction between racism and prejudice, a common and costly point of misunderstanding. Prejudice is judgment made in the absence of due examination and consideration of the facts. And these judgments are held even when contradicted by the facts. In the absence of factual basis, prejudices are driven primarily by emotional responses, emotional responses such as fear. When a prejudice is based on racial consideration, it is called racial prejudice. However, race prejudice alone is not racism. When prejudice is combined with power, it becomes racism. Power is the capacity to command, control, and dominate social reality. Those who control power have the capacity to transform prejudice into racism by establishing and maintaining institutions and structures that embody group biases. Thus, it is the combination of power plus prejudice that's so destructive. Therefore, racial prejudice plus power equals racism. Now, if we understand this equation, then we understand that racism, we understand that racism as systemic inequality. In, and it is against God's will. And it is therefore unjust. But in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, we are taught, our, our God delights in justice. And in Amos, God calls for the people to establish justice at the gate and let justice roll down like waters. And in Micah, it reads, what the Lord requires of us is this, to do, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. God delights in justice, and all humans deserve justice. So I conclude this morning where we began. The new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised. No barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and Christ in all.